All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm very excited to be joined today by Father Ken Geraci. Uh, we're recording this in Holy Week, so I will not give you the, the traditional Easter greeting, Father, but uh, but we'll pretend we're doing that. I'm going to release this in the week leading up to Divine Mercy Sunday. So a, oh, a great fantastic. opportunity to have a Father of Mercy on the show. So welcome to Creedal Catholic, Father Thanks Ken. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, definitely. So uh, as, as a way of background to my listeners, how I've gotten to know you is you've been at my parish for the past several months, for most of or all of Lent, I think. Yes, all of Lent. So uh, so a lot of our um, our daily masses you've been saying with us, you've been there a lot. Uh, you're a very good homilist. I appreciate all of your homilies. Uh, and it's been a great opportunity to have another priest in our midst and just learn from someone besides our pastor and parochial vicar. So thanks for doing that. Uh, first question for you. Is that a normal thing for a father of mercy to do kind of travel around to a different parish for extended periods of time? Not extended. Okay. We do short, short visits. We normally go to a parish for about a week at a time and then kind of hit it and then move on to the next one. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. Well, it's been great having you here. That's awesome. Um, so, uh, I'll give it kind of a short bio yeah. and then I'll, I'll ask you to give me a longer version of it. And I really want to hear about your conversion story because you like, <laughs> I guess you're, you're not a convert like me. You're a revert, right? Yeah. Because you, you you had the sacraments as a child. So I want to hear that story coming back. But so you went to uh, Stephen F. Austin State yes. in Texas, worked in business for about seven years. Yep. You had been sacramentalized as a kid, but had fallen away from the faith, were a functioning agnostic by the time you graduated from college. Yep. High school. Yeah. High school. Okay. High school. So yep. a functioning agnostic all the way through college. Mm -hmm. And then in business for seven years, through some business associates, you found your way back to the church or the church found yep. her way back to you. Exactly. In ish 99. Yeah. And then just a couple years after that, 2002, you discerned a call to the priesthood. Yes. Entered with the Fathers of Mercy in 2006. Uh, went to Holy Apostles Seminary in Connecticut and then ordained in 2012. Do I have all that right? You got it all right. The only thing we left out is that I was on a date when I realized I was supposed to be a priest. Wow. Okay. Let's start with that. Let's Worst date ever. <laughs> tell me that story. <laughs> Let's back up. Well, let me give you the kind of the, the, the high level uh, conversion story sure. um, because it all kind of feeds into that. Um, so back in, you know, as, a, as you said, I was sacramentalized as a kid, went through the motions. Our family went to church every Sunday, but we never prayed together. There was no sense of Catholic identity outside of the sacraments of the church. And uh, my mom and I recently had a conversation about this and, and it was basically because of the nominal identity of the faith of the priests, specifically at the time in the 80s and 90s, that, um, you know, my mom said we did what we were told to do. And so we helped with coffee and donuts. We did all of the volunteer work. We did all that stuff. But um, the priests never talked about praying together, reading the scriptures together, or, um, you know, the, the value of the rosary, the value of Eucharistic adoration or daily mass. Uh, if they would have promoted that, I'm sure my mom would have taken us and dad would have taken us to do that. Uh, so, so as a result of that, um, we went through the motions, uh, you know, the family that doesn't pray together will not stay together. Right. Heard so, that. Yeah. yeah. Read that somewhere. <laughs> so my senior year of high school, my parents' marriage ended in divorce. Uh, they separated oh, wow. and, uh, I began to play my mom against my dad and yeah. gave up faith and religion altogether. So let me just pause you real quick. Would you say that that had, was that sort of the straw that broke the camel's back for your own loss of faith or did it not play a pivotal role at all? Or was that something more significant than the straw? I mean, it didn't play any role whatsoever. Whatsoever, okay. because because the tension in the household was so extreme to begin with, yeah. um, you know they weren't. I mean, they're, they're good loving people, and there wasn't it wasn't a violent divorce or anything like that. It was just it was just a couple that had those ships had sailed apart for a long time, and we we were experiencing that tension not only there but in our own lives. We were secular. We didn't have God in our lives. So, so your loss of faith preceded. Oh, that it by preceded a long time. that. Like I never. 
I would have said I believed in God, but I wouldn't have said, yes, I have a relationship with Christ. Sure. Um, I never read the scripture. So he's there. He's there. Yeah. But, but it means nothing. It means nothing. Yeah. You know, and, and the other part was, is that, you know, I'm very scientific in my thinking and, and would use the excuse of how could God exist if all of these things of science are true. Right. But really at the end of the day, it was, no one's going to tell me how to live. Mm. So, so. All right, so as we frame this, this is going to be framed against my arrogance and pride. Sure. Because it was really deep and thick. Um, you know, I wanted nothing more in life than, than make money because I thought money would make me happy. And so I went off to college to get a business degree. Uh, I wasn't very smart. I've got some severe learning disabilities. I today, Even today, I can hardly read. Uh, I can read words, but I, I there's like a 10 to 20% um, retention of what I read because of some ocular dysfunction as well as um, ADHD dyslexia. Um, so, you know, I kind of overcame that in seminary. But uh, so during that time, I, I knew that if I went to college, got a degree, at least I, my work ethic would set me apart from everyone else. And uh, went through college as basically total secular. And uh, my senior year of college, though, I wrote a paper on the internet. It was actually the end of my junior year. And the internet, 1997, 98, the internet's just emerging. And I wrote this paper that was, it wasn't great. Half the conclusions were probably wrong. <laughs> but it was it was new information to the faculty and staff. that right. They knew nothing about it. And I was kind of introducing them to concepts. Um. That following semester, uh, a uh, Fortune 500 company, the director of advanced research and development came and said, listen, I need a guy who knows marketing and knows technology. And they said, well, we got one guy for you. Oh, nice. And so I was referred to them. So, so you were on the leading edge of the dot-com bubble. I was right there. Nice. <laughs> right there. I, actually, we did catch the wave. Um, my, uh, I was recruited out of school. And so my senior year of high school, I took 20 hours of coursework and I worked 40 hours a week for okay. this software company, uh, software and hardware company called iOmega, if anybody can think back that far. Um, I mean, it's so crazy. They, they come and go so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and especially like, you know, half of the ones at least that were around at the time have just either been acquired or dissolved into oblivion. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I was working in their advanced R&D group on MP3 players and eBooks. Oh, wow. So and you were really on the leading edge. We were right. Yeah. We, we had the very first MP3 player made in Taiwan by some weird company. Um, but we were making one for our company, for our organization, uh, iOmega. Um Probably about a year after that, uh, my boss uh, approached me. He says, listen, I've got this idea for a software company, and I thought you might be interested, and you could probably play a pivotal role in it. And so he talked to me about it. It was a knowledge management uh, software, uh, completely separate from what we were working on. And uh, he said, I can't pay you, but I can offer you ownership in exchange for your work. So It can be a good deal. It, it, was, it was literally the day after I graduated college. So, so I went from 20 hours a week of of school plus 40 hours a week of work to now 40 hours a week of work plus another 20 hours a week of, of additional work. Right, so right. We were working nights and weekends. We did that for about six, seven months, uh, presented it to a variety of investors. Uh, one company liked it enough and invested four and a half million dollars into the project. Solid. That's, some, that's yeah. a good chunk of venture capital. It's a, it was significant. And, and these people, uh, it was, it was crazy. It was just a crazy time. So uh, part of our funding agreement was moved from Nacogdoches to Austin, Texas. So, uh, we were right there in 2000. I didn't was, realize you'd been in Austin. Uh, yeah. We used to live yeah. there. So Great, great spot. So here's the crazy part. It was April 1st of 2000 that I landed in Austin and that the cash, the four and a half million dollar check went into wow. the bank. So 21 yeah. years ago today, we're recording this April 1st. Today, so yeah. April 1st. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, 
so there we are and and working away. And at a certain point, my boss is a devout Catholic. And Mike approached me one day and he effectively says, Ken, you know, professionally, I don't have any problems with you, but personally, I do. Uh, depending on who we meet with, who we're talking to, I'll hear you tell people that you're a Christian, even sometimes that you're Catholic. Mm. But you've told me you don't believe in God, you don't pray, you don't go to church. And honestly, some of the stories you tell are unbecoming a man, let alone a Christian. So I'm curious, which is it? It's a pretty bold, uh, bold thing to say. It's a real good for him. Yeah, it is a real friend. friend. But that's a beautiful part about like relationships, right? Is that we had a two year relationship and I could go with Mike and and we're working on a project. And I say, I think this is a better way. And Mike would literally, he had the humility to say, okay, if this is the better way, let's do it. And he would look at it, but we would argue back and forth. And, um, you know, it was just this really respectful relationship. And so when he said that, I, I not only took it to heart, but he didn't stop there. He didn't just challenge me in that. He invited me to come to church with he and his family. And so for the first time in my life, I see a man who is an intellectual giant in my mind. He's a brilliant, smart guy kneeling before Jesus in the Eucharist. Yeah. Right. And, and there's just like, that didn't convert me, but it's like, huh, that's weird. Right. Why does this man who's more scientific and smarter than me believe in a God? Right. And why is he conforming himself? To, to the Catholic Church. Right, not just believing in God, because as you said, you were at that point, right, where yeah. like there was probably a God it was a out coin there. Toss. Yeah, yeah, a coin toss. Uh, but not just believing in God, but like believing in God to such a point where it shapes his life. Yes, fundamentally shaped his life. Yeah. Like, and he was overt about it. And yeah, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. So that got the ball rolling. So I started going back to church with he and his family. My roommate at the time was Baptist. So he saw me go to the Catholic church. Of course, I had to go to the Baptist church so I could get saved. Of course, yeah. <laughs> can't, I mean, can't, can't, can't be Catholic that's, that's, without being That's the process, yeah. Um, so he started, so this whole process started one round. And God put all of these people in my life. And I never met any anti-Catholic or, or angry Protestants. I only met these people who were really serious about Jesus Christ. That's amazing. And... I just still remember going to one couple's house for dinner one night and they invited me over and I was really arrogant, really prideful. And I'm like, even then I'm like, wow, these people aren't investing in me. Like there's no value for me to come to their home for them. They're inviting me over to be part of their family. And I was like, Mm -hmm. it was just humbling at the time. And, and I remember the wife was literally glowing and I'm like, you look really happy. She's like, we're pregnant. Oh, wow. And he's That's like, cool. it's God's will. <laughs> so, <laughs> so clearly not a planned pregnancy, but, yeah. but you know, they're open to life yeah. and like it was, you know, it was what a testimony. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, I look, I still remember that how radiant she was and how full of joy, but how open of life and like, and like having children is not always easy mm-hmm. and it's, you know, they're never convenient. You know, it's not, a, there's never a convenient time to start yeah. having a family. Um, but it was just so all these amazing witnesses. And then I began to my discernment process um, just towards Christianity. And so I do this exhaustive study of Eastern religion versus in Mormonism. And then, you know, Islam was a very short look and then Christianity. And when you look at Christianity, Jesus Christ said he was God. And so that's either true or false. I mean, there's no middle ground there. You can't, you can't do mental gymnastics over that. So he either is or he's not. So let's start there. Mm-hmm. And I was at the Baptist church and the, uh, the little youth minister was running around and he, I was not connecting with anything he said. But at one point he said, he took his Bible and he says, if you want to change your life forever, do this. He says, pick up the New Testament and read one chapter of the New Testament every day. I think he said, do it for two months. And he said, if you doubt God's existence, start in the gospel of John. 
And I said, you know what? I'll take your challenge. In two months, I'm going to come back, thump you on the head, give you your Bible back, say I don't have to believe. And literally, I don't know how many weeks, but it was quick uh, that reading one chapter a day of the Gospel of John fundamentally changed my life. Wow. Um, there were times that I would read the my scripture, and I'd do it before I'd go to bed at night. And I'd read it, and I there were times like I could almost feel the sand between my toes, and I could almost smell the aridity of Israel. And um, it, it was just, there was such a sensible experience of the presence of God as I would read, and, and I would lay there, and I would talk to God about things, and I would say things, and, and I would catch myself inadvertently praying. And so it started this whole process. And then would it, would it almost like haunt you and keep you up? No, no. It was actually so wonderful and peaceful. Like I'd, I fall asleep okay. relatively easy. Gotcha. Um, but it was, but it was an experience mm-hmm. in scripture. And, you know, so like when I look at Catholicism today, we have the fullness of the truth, but we look at our Protestant evangelical brothers and sisters who just have the Bible, but like they are truly not only being discipled, but discipling others. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a richness there. There is something that's alive in them. And a lot like a, a faithful Catholic who receives the Eucharist, uh, it's not that we've consumed the Eucharist. It isn't that Christ has consumed us. Yeah. And, and you know, a, a, a very taking a great liberty on you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Um, many of our Protestant brothers and sisters literally consume the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, there, there is this deep sense of, of the consuming of the body and blood of Christ through the sacred scriptures that they do uh, so much better than many Catholics. And, um, and so I had that encounter and that experience and that started my journey. Um, and I got involved with a, a group called Christ for News' Parish. A friend of mine was going, it was actually my friend, Mike, and then there were two other guys and uh, they, uh, they said, hey, come on out to this retreat. You'll love nice. it. And I'm like, I'm sure I won't. But <laughs> and, but it was good. I went and uh, it was life-changing. So that was still in Austin? That was in what Austin. What parish was that? St. John Newman. Oh, okay. that's where we went. Did nice. you really? Yeah. 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 So, cool. Yeah. Monsignor, whatever his name was. Um, Not there anymore. No, yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah. Good parish though. Yeah. Great beautiful parish. too. I don't, I don't know if they had their new building when you were there. Yeah. They No, they just started okay. building it. Okay. It's beautiful. It's yeah. absolutely beautiful. They have this, yeah. like, this amazing rotunda with a mosaic inlaid. It's amazing. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah there was such a fervent parish though. Yeah. There were a lot sure. of great men there um, and a lot of good stuff happening there. Uh, so it was just getting involved with that group that led me back to this concept of all right, Catholicism could be it. And so I'm studying Catholicism. But in this process, we sell the software company. It was 2002, so the market has now crashed. Yeah. Everything's gone. We sell the company for a million two five. So four and a half in, million two yeah. five out. You not, know, not great. Yeah. Not great. But I had enough cash to live for about a year without working. And I had no intention of taking a year off, but I just wanted to reevaluate my life because business world was not fulfilling. I wanted so much more. And I didn't know what contemplation was. And in hindsight, this is what was happening. But I was sitting in my big fat leather chair overlooking the cedar trees of Austin. And I'm thinking, what do I want out of life? And the my response is, is that I want to be a husband and a father more than anything else. And the next question came is that if you met the woman of your dreams tomorrow, would you be ready to marry her? And my response was a big resounding no. Mm-hmm. I said, one of those things don't don't line up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a there was a lot. One, I didn't have a job. I had some money, but money evaporates quick. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I need to have. I mean, it's a very natural thing to want to be able to provide for that family. Exactly. So, yeah. so the provision part. But then I said, if I had wife and kids, I would want to pray with them every night, mm. which was really weird because I didn't pray every night. Right. Um, I make that distinction that I was a man who prayed, 
not a man of prayer. And there's a big difference between a person who prays and a person of prayer. You know, a person of prayer, their life is animated by prayer. And at the end of the day, if they didn't spend time with God and have time and devotion, like there's something seriously wrong. Something was lacking. And you look back at your day, you're searching like, what went wrong? Yeah. But a person who prays, like gets in the end of the day and says, oh, I haven't prayed today. And they look back and they're like, eh. And they just go to bed, right? Instead of trying to enter in that relationship with God. Yeah. So... So that was like, I need to be that. And then the next question came is that, uh, do you know what the woman of your dreams look like? And I'm like, oh, I got a really good picture of the woman of my dreams. And, uh, and then the, the follow-up to that was, is that, yes, but are you the man of her dreams? Mm. Yeah. And the realization came that I don't need to be concerned about the woman of my dreams. I need to be concerned about the, being the man of her dreams yeah. so that when I meet her, all I have to do is make adjustments, not changes, right? And so that, that the woman of my dreams will come if I'm striving to be the man of her dreams. And so there, there should be a universal set of properties that a man, that makes a man a man attractive to a woman. And part of that is, is being a man of God and a man of prayer. And for me, I just decided that I needed to get my faith part straight. I needed to get coached up on being what a husband should be. And so I, I got three or four couples in my life that I was really close with that I started going to and saying, like, hey, you know, Susie, what made Bill a great husband? And so he's just That's super mature of you to do that. Oh, yeah. it was, well, it was one, it was grace. I, I give it all to grace, but also business practice, right? You know, in business, it's all about best yeah. practices. Don't best reinvent practices, the wheel. case studies, market research. <laughs> yeah. Don't reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Like we've been doing this for a couple thousand years, right? right? Let's figure you know, out what works. Let's figure out what works. What doesn't work? Like what drives you crazy? You know, like it's crazy. You know, <laughs> ask, ask an unmarried woman what the man of her dreams looks like. And then ask a woman who's been married five or 10 years, what the man of her dreams looks like. Two very different lists. Very different. Yeah. Very different list. And, um, one comes from a mature experience perspective. So, so that's what I was seeking. And, uh, so after about eight months of, of really kind of living this life of trying to be this. And you're, you're unemployed at this point still, you're unemployed. just kind of yeah. figuring out what's next. So literally yeah. 2002, every time I turned on the TV, there was like 1500, 2000 people laid off. I yeah. literally felt that I was in control. No, I mean, we talked rest. about the dot-com bubble. This is oh, like the unreal. edge of the dot-com boom. It was, this is, this is when the bubble burst. Yeah. yeah. It was the total burst and deflation and just yeah. at one point, 50% of everyone I knew was out of work. Wow. Yeah. That's bad. It was horrible. So. We went from from there to I couldn't get jobs interviewed. There was just searching, 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 burning through money, you know, quickly. Yeah. I had a mean sushi habit. Um, I do love sushi. Yes, no kidding. There's some good sushi in Austin, surprisingly, too, because it's so far inland. But Yes, yeah. yes. Korean Garden, by the way. That was a Oh, I don't think place. I've been there. Okay. Yeah. I wonder if it's still in operation. It probably is. Yeah. It's, it's a little shady, but it's good. Okay. I mean, the, the best places are, right? Yeah, that's right. It's awesome. But, um, so eight, was, eight months into this discernment, then. eight months into this, I'm, I'm discerning marriage. Friends of mine introduced me to this great girl. Um, we're dating probably about eight weeks into this dating. And she calls me, she says, Hey, there's a priest coming to my church. You want to come hang out? And I'm like, uh, you know, I never met a priest that seemed to like what he did. So I just didn't. Man, and that's sad. It was horrible. Like I never knew any good faithful priest that had zeal for souls and zeal for what they did. And just have that sort of glow. Like I am just so satisfied in my vocation. Yes. I know this is what yeah. God wants for me. Love. I'm so happy to be doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Love yeah. faith, love celibacy, love all the things that I get to do. Right. Yeah. None of that. That's too bad. Yeah. It was unfortunate. And uh, so she calls so, me. And I'm sorry if I missed it. Have yeah. you been like confirmed back into the church at this point? So I was confirmed as a kid. So Oh, so you don't need, so you just make, go to confession. Yeah, and, just go to confession. Yeah, yeah, okay, gotcha, in. gotcha. And I, and I think, and I know I had been to confession a couple of times in that process, yeah. but literally 
had no idea what sin was and what right. like what a real confession is. So yeah. so I know they counted because you know ignorance is ignorance. So sacraments are the sacraments. Sacraments yeah. are the sacraments, and God was working with me where I am and uh, moving me along. And so this girl and I go out on this date, and uh, she's we go to this. Uh, this is the date. This is yeah, the okay. date. All right. So, oh gosh. So we're <laughs> sitting there, and this priest is on fire. I'm like young, young guy, 40 something years old. And I sit back in the pew in the middle of this guy's conference. And I said, if he says I'm signing people up in the back to become priest, I'll go. I don't know what I'll tell Melissa or my family, but I'll do it. Literally the exact thought, the most honest thought I've ever had. Within 20 seconds of thinking that Melissa elbows me in the side and she goes, Hey, are you sure you're not supposed to be a priest? Oh, wow. Freaked me out. Seriously. Literally slid into the pew, turned into <laughs> oh, a statue. Goodness. And I, and I said, I looked at the tabernacle and I said, that didn't count. I said, if he says it, yeah. I will go, not her. Wow. That did not count. And so I sat there the whole night. And if he would have made an altar call, I literally would have stood up and walked up. But he didn't. Mm -hmm. And that was in November of 2002. Um, from November of 2002 to February of 2003, the thought about being a priest bothered me every single day. Like, viciously every day. And... Um, I moved from Austin to Houston, which is about 300 miles away. And I finally talked to someone about it. And the person says, is your plan for your life better or is God's plan? I said, well, probably God's. He goes, how do you feel about praying about the concept? I said, I can do that. He said, here's the name of a priest across town. Go knock on his door. I think you'll be, just meet with him once a month. Good, yeah. Just pray. Just, I'm like, I can, I can handle that. Starting point, yeah. Starting point. So he goes, young guy, I think you'll relate. So I knock on the door, out walks this 65-year-old guy. And I'm like, like seriously? I'm like, God. So young. <laughs> like all of my stereotypes, like right here, Irish, yeah. old, you know, overweight. And I was like, golly. And I'm like, are you father, you know, so-and-so? And he's like, no, no, let me get him. And so he yells for the guy in the back and he's looking at me and he goes, uh, uh, it's none of my business, dude, but, uh, you look pretty freaked out. <laughs> and I'm like, listen, I'm like, you know what? I'm thinking about marriage. I'm doing this. I'm thinking this. And then she says this. And as I'm telling this old guy, this story, this old priest's story out walks the same priest that was in Austin four months earlier. Oh, really? Yeah. I was, oh, I was him. Wow. Are you still in touch with him? No, no, okay. we, we lost touch. There was, and there's a reason for that. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but that was, I literally shook his hand and I said, you know, I'm Ken Geraci. I think I'm supposed to be a priest. Wow. So that was really the beginning. So I was actually discerning the priesthood before I was convinced of Catholicism. That's pretty cool. It's crazy. Yeah. God, that's my Magnificat. Yeah. yeah. This is the, my soul proclaiming the greatness of the Lord. So then it was 2006 that you entered the Fathers of Mercy. So mm -hmm. what, what happened in that intervening time? Had you already discerned a vocation earlier on and... Yeah, so it was really from that point, that was my lightning bolt moment that okay. a lot of people pray for, I got. Um, and I just knew from that point forward that I needed to be a priest. Yeah. And it was just very clear, that among other things. Uh, so friends of mine introduced me to another priest who gave me probably the best discernment device ever, uh, discernment advice ever. Um, I was going to say, man, if there's a discernment device, that's great. Let's exactly. talk about that. I've got it for sale. Uh, <laughs> Sounds super helpful. Nineteen ninety five a month uh, will we'll fill the church. Um <laughs> No, he, uh, he made the distinction. He said, uh, the call to the diocesan priesthood is a call. And you got to make a distinction in call. Call to the diocesan priesthood is the call to a people of a geography to serve the people in the generic sense of being the priesthood. So basically, all of the activities of a priest done in a particular geography. In that diocese. In that diocese, right. Um, where a religious priest is called to specialize in a particular work of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And then do that in a in a in a broad context. Wherever. Exactly. Yeah. So whether it's working with the poor, teaching, educating, yeah. working with the youth. For us, it's preaching, doing missions and retreats. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. 
so so I was do, I was always a specialist in my career field. Um, at that time, I was working as a consultant doing private business consulting. So I was at a different client site, you know, almost weekly. So so familiar territory to yeah, you. Yeah, it was a very fit. So uh, on a on a sort of you know weekly monthly basis, what does your position look like? Are you traveling around the country? I know you said the Fathers of Mercy are based in Western Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So is it, is it regional normally for you? Are you just traveling all over the place? And then what, what are you doing when you do travel? So a, a standard parish mission as a missionary, uh, itinerant mission preacher, we go to a parish a week at a time and we, okay. we jokingly say we're salesmen for Jesus. We're, <laughs> we do the Catholic version of a Baptist revival. Okay. And so we'll come into a parish, preach the masses on the weekend to invite the people to come to the mission. And then, uh, you know, Sunday night through Thursday night or a variation of that, uh, we'll preach on a series of topics. Got it. And four last things. Uh, fundamentals of the faith, a lot of basics. Um, as fathers of mercy, we really focus on the concept of the sacrament of reconciliation. Yeah. Because that is the sacrament of mercy. This is where the prodigal son gets to come home, whether it's been a few weeks or a few decades, right? It's it's an invitation to conversion. It's an invitation home. And uh, it's, it's really being faithful to the first call of Jesus Christ, repent and believe. Mm-hmm. And so we teach uh, through our preaching, and we're very much evangelist. Uh, there's a fundamental distinction between an evangelist and a, a catechist, and then a catechist and a teacher, right? Right. Um, catechists and teachers have more in common than a, than a catechist and an evangelist. But really, the job of an evangelist is not as much to impart knowledge as it is to provide knowledge for the sake of leading a person to an encounter and experience of Jesus Christ. And so, you know, you'll, my daily mass homilies, for example, uh, every single mass homily I give, every homily I give, uh, I look at the homily as a bridge from the liturgy of the word to the, litur- to the Eucharist, right. right? And so every homily I end is, as you receive Jesus today, pray for X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And whether you do that or not, is, it's up to the individual, right? You can pray for something else. Sure. But, but I really want people to go from the word to the word. And because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here today, gone tomorrow, right? You know, hopefully I'll live a great faithful life, be martyred later in life, be wonderful, um, go straight to heaven, be a saint. But, but it doesn't matter about me. It's all about if I can get you into a deeper connection with Jesus Christ, specifically Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, Jesus Christ in the sacrament of right. healing, um, then it all goes well for you, right? Because your faith isn't based on, oh, I really like Father Ken. It, it's that. Oh no, I really love Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, a friend of mine in the parish actually, where we, he and I were just talking the other day about how Catholics in general, I think the Catholic liturgy, we were actually talking about this, um, this article, uh, in Adoramus that was talking about Benedict the 16th and how he says we need to do liturgy better. And he's not saying that we need like more fancy vestments, more right. ostentatious liturgies. He's saying that we, we need to make Jesus the focus of our liturgies, yeah. get back to that. And it's going to fix so many of our other problems yes. in the church. I completely agree with him. My friend and I were talking about how one very easy way to do that is to, is to make more clear the linkage between the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And we often don't do that. We, we show up to mass and we think, especially if you're an uncatechized Catholic, you show up to mass and you just think, okay, here's the deal. Like I go there, we sing some stuff in the beginning, uh, listen to some Bible readings, listen to a homily. And then we roll into the part where we do the altar stuff. Right. And then I, like I get into the assembly line, I receive communion and then I go home. Sometimes I'll just, I'll just pack up and leave before we even <laughs> really end things. Right. I'll just receive communion and just march out the door. We don't do a good job creating that linkage, but I think it's so important to do that. And I like what you said about go from the word 
to the word. Yeah. So go from the word as it is in the the words of scripture yeah. to the incarnate word yes. who becomes a part of us in the Eucharist. Yeah. So to turn this into a concrete question for you, so I'm not just pontificating here, how do we do that better, right? Because you said that that's kind of one of the charisms of your order. That's what yeah. you try to help people do. So how do we how do we do that? What advice do you have for people who are listening to this, who are, they, they attend their, their local parish and that linkage is not clear. How do you make that linkage more clear? So I think important thing is to study the mass for the lay people. Uh, I've got a bigger answer to that question, but for what can a lay person do is to study the mass. And uh, my CD series on the Fathers of Mercy website, uh, Why Be Catholic? The fifth talk of that is entitled How to Pray the Mass. Uh, you can get, also get that if you go to the uh, Holy Apostles of Colorado Springs website. You can look for the third session of the parish mission. It's free on YouTube. So you can get the How to Pray the Mass free on YouTube from the Holy Apostles uh, uh, YouTube link. I'll, I'll include a link to that yeah. in the show notes here. So if you want to find that, go do that. But actually, as you're talking about that, I've got the the parish mission, Why Be Catholic, on my desk right here. I'm sending it to a listener, in fact. So Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we'll get you more copies then. Um, the the beauty of this is that is that I break down the practical and mystical ways to pray the Mass and and you know, the Jewish roots of the mass being that the, the liturgy of the word is a synagogue service and liturgy of the Eucharist is temple worship and how we bring those together and how to pray those. And, and so if you understand the nuances of the mass, the mass is the highest form of prayer. So yes, it's available to everyone, but also if it's the highest form of prayer, it's reasonable to think that there's going to be nuances in it that you can study and discover and, and exploit for your benefit to, to always enter more fully into the mass so that you're always getting something from mass because you've given yourself most fully to the mass. So I, I think for lay people is studying how to pray the mass. That's really the key thing. And not, and I know there's a lot of great people out there who's done here, all the biblical, you know, references in the mass, Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist or the lamb supper by Scott Hahn. Exactly. Yeah. Those two are great books, but, but the ones that really go through in depth of here's all the, the biblical references, that's not giving you practical, tangible ways of praying the mass. Right. Like you need, like my professor said. So those are like the the footnotes for the mass almost, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think Jewish roots of the Eucharist and Lamb's Supper really give you a deeper sense into it yeah. and like can, can give you more of that mystical and reality of what's happening. Um, but, but literally to say, here's how you can pray the consecration. Here, you know, when you pray, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. Like, do you mean that when you say that? Like, honestly, let's just, let's just all do a quick gut check. When we say, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. Do you mean that? And do you really mean that? Yeah. Or do you just say it? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I can speak for myself here. Sometimes I do. If I'm, if I'm dialed in right. other times, it's like, oh yeah, this is the part where I respond. Lord have mercy. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like, and, and then, and then when we say, uh, after the consecration, right. Uh, the, the lamb of God. Most people are just repeating those words. They yeah. have no clue. The organ starts playing. The organ starts playing, right? <laughs> but like what I teach people in this how to pray the mass is like your attention needs to be like a laser on the altar, on Jesus on the altar, because not only am I picking up the body of Christ and fracturing the, the host, mm -hmm. you're speaking to the Lamb of God who I have in my hand, yeah. who's on the altar, the, the um, Calvary made present. And so if, if you have a sense of of what's happening. And you can catch yourself at mm -hmm. all of these different points saying, am I, am I dialing it in? Am I, because you've got 
Four kids, five kids? Four kids, yeah. Four kids. You've got four kids. So half the that, time- That's my next question for you. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, half the time you're parenting. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so as one mother told me, she said, I spent more time parenting in church than I did praying for a decade. Yeah. So let me just ask you my question yeah. then, because that was exactly where I was going with that. What advice from a pastoral perspective? Because yeah. there's the sort of ideal form, right? And that's, you know, my wife and I, we try to take our kids to daily mass as frequently as we can. And we realized a couple months ago that, you know, we should really make an effort to- go individually at least once a week as well so that that we can have a quiet contemplative experience of the mass and so we do that now so we try to take our kids frequently and then i'll normally go one day and sally will go another day just by ourselves and so that's been really nice because we we then have an opportunity to try to pray it much more intentionally but when our kids are with us totally different story like it is it is you know it's very hard to pay attention it's hard for me to even hear a homily because i'm busy refereeing or trying to get my kids to focus. I'm trying to translate for them parts of the mass because I also want them to enter into the mystery. Right. And they they will understand commensurate with their age and maturity, but I still want them to understand there's something there for everyone. Yeah. And so kind of an open-ended question here, I guess, but, but what do you say to parents who are in our situation like that? Keep doing it. Yeah. Keep doing because the mystical realities of the mass, I mean, the children, literally children see the angels. They'll, some of them, and they'll, they'll, like the realities of the mass are made present to them in a sense, percept- sense perceptible way, but also in a in implicit way that impresses upon them in a deep, powerful way. And specifically when dad goes to the mass, kids are like, oh, this is important because right. dad's taking us to mass. So uh, I think at the heart of it, these are the the principles is that one, doing it is, is just get there, just showing up. You know, they say 80% of success is showing up, you know, and and making a good effort. So... Uh, but the other part is don't be frustrated if you have to parent half or 75% or all of the mass yeah. because because what you're doing is you're setting the stage for success in the future, right? You know, anyone who's ever won a championship or, or been successful at anything knows that there is a lot of grueling, not beautiful, ugly foundational work, yeah. right? You all know, that practice time. All that practice time. You know, we're watching this uh, new concrete slab being poured and like they're, they're there literally hand tying, you know, twist ties on rebar. And there's nothing beautiful or eloquent about that, but you're, you're doing all of these basic things as a parent and you're setting the stage saying, Hey, this is important enough for us to be here. Our time is the most valuable commodity we have yeah. and we're spending it here. And so if, you know, to, like, I really wish parents uh, would continue to do this and sometimes do a better job at it. But when a child is disrupted or acting out, that's part of being a kid, right? Sure. But it's it's the parent that just lets the kid take the, you know, we bring 45 toys and yeah. Cheerios and, and like, and we make a picnic table, you know, or in the pew. And like, I understand, but I think we're missing an opportunity there. Yeah. Um, it's an opportunity missed because, because if we can say, Wait, sweetie, we don't bring toys in the church for a reason. Mm-hmm. We we leave toys in the car because right now we're going to go before God. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand that, mommy. That's okay. We're, we're going to do our <laughs> best for, for 30 minutes, okay? Yeah. And if I can get 12 out of you, I'll be happy. Right. You know? No, that's so that's so true. And uh, I mean, I don't pretend like we have all the answers and or that everyone should do what we do, but we made a decision early on to not do any food in church nice. because mass is a time for consuming Jesus, but not consuming Cheerios or whatever snacks. And we don't do, we don't do toys either. Uh, but we will let our kids bring in, like they have their own, you know, kids missiles. They yeah, have yeah. children's Bibles. We'll let them color. And the cool thing about the coloring is that 
sometimes like my son will just want to draw like cement mixers and pickup trucks. But other times my daughter will say like, look what I drew. It's, it's father Ken or father Lawrence or father Jim. And they're at the altar and here are the angels around them or something. And it's just super cool to see that they're, they're taking it in and they're making it their own. Right. That's exactly, I mean, it's so amazing when the kids in, in enter into that with that. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so, I mean, if, if any of my listeners are struggling with sort of some of the ground rules, that's what's worked for, for us so far. And when I say it's worked, it's not, I'm not saying that like, we're not also parenting in mass. Sometimes it is like 90% of the mass I'm Mm -hmm. mostly parenting or refereeing or something. So we haven't all, we haven't figured it all out, but uh, those ground rules have been pretty good for, yeah. for us and for our kids. Yeah. And please don't mistake me by, you know, when we talk about fussy children, it, it's not a problem because sure. every child, I just, I know that children have meltdowns and yeah. these things happen, yeah. uh, but it's just, how are we responding to it? Right. right. And, and is that the consistent, you know, activity? Yeah. I want more people to take their kids to church too, because I know some parents who feel really bad when their kids act out in church and like, you know, are, are obviously embarrassed and hustling to the back and, I just think, oh man, if you sat next to my kid, like you would hear all the same oh stuff. Gosh, like, yeah, no first of all, it's most parishes are pretty big. It's probably, you know, your, your kid's probably not making as much noise as you think. Yeah. But second, even if they are like, this is just what, this is what happens when families are in church. And we would all much rather have families be in church than families not be in church. Exactly. So. Well, there was this Fulton Sheen story that Sheen tells. And uh, he said, uh, there was a child crying and the mother stood up and took the kid to the back. And as she was, she was, she was going to the back, Fulton Sheen says, ma'am, ma'am, you, you don't need to leave. Your child is not bothering me at all. And she says, yes, father, but you're, you're bothering him. <laughs> That's pretty good. So just balance it. Okay. So uh, I know you've got somewhere to be and I don't want to take too much of your time, but I've got a few more things that yeah. I wanted to ask you. So as someone who goes around and does these parish missions, what are, what, what's maybe the one biggest thing or some big things that you've taken away uh, in terms of things that the church needs to be doing better? Devotions. Devotions. Okay. Devotions. Tell me more about that. So a, a family that prays together stays together. Okay. Let's just build on that. A parish family that prays together stays together, right? A parish that has perpetual Eucharistic adoration. Yeah. I mean, so I'll pause you right there. So when we moved here to this area, uh, I had a job in this general area. And we thought, okay, here's kind of, here's the things we want, right? We want proximity to this and proximity to that, short commute, et cetera. But the the number one thing is we want to be close to a good parish. And so we looked up the good parishes or we looked at the parishes around here and kind of like looked at the websites and saw what they had. And Holy Apostles caught my eye because of the 24-7 perpetual adoration. And I just thought if a church is doing that, there's something going on at that church that we want to be a part of. Exactly. And so that's, that's basically how we chose where we live. That's why we are you know so close to the parish now, et cetera, because we saw that and wanted to make that a priority. So I think that is a huge thing that I can speak out, speak about just from personal experience that when a parish has that, there's something going on at that parish. Tremendously. It's a great litmus test. Um, not only communal rosaries within the, within the parish congregation, but a pastor or a priest who encourages you as a family to pray collectively, right? And so for you to have a family prayer life, but then not only a family prayer life, a matrimonial prayer life, which we don't talk about much. Um, and I'm big on that. A husband and wife having your prayer time, even if it's just one Our Father, one Hail Mary, one Glory Be, yeah. right? If it's 30 seconds every day that you and your wife just pray together alone, that's huge. And then independent prayer lives. Uh, when I talk about vocation, I talk about first the universal call to holiness, what is your personal plan of prayer? What's your prayer life look like then? How are you being discipled and discipling others? Then if for a married person, that's your second vocation is matrimony. Then within that second vocation, there's a third vocation of a 
being a parent, right? And so, so how do we live our universal call to holiness, matrimony, and then being a parent yeah. in that order? Now, again, they they intersect, and there's there's this this whole uh, merging of them. But are we doing these things well? And so, the parishes that I find that that promote devotions in church and out of church, you know, the thing that made me fall in love with uh, Father Barron here is he made that statement that he says, you know, how for 2,000 years or 1,900 years did the church exist without all of the structures that without we have. parish halls, without and, parish yeah. halls, without you know extensive staffs, and, yeah. yeah, you know, so and they did it because they had devotions, mm-hmm. right? And and John Paul II said the for the periodic renewal of a parish, there is no substitute than a parish mission. And because historically a parish mission would reinvigorate the parish in terms of getting back to your fundamentals, back to your devotions. So what would it be historically? Would it be another, an itinerant priest who would come in and lead a mission? Yeah. So historically uh, in the 1800s, 1900s, uh, two priests would travel together and they would go to a parish for a month. Oh, wow. And they would take it like Arthur Anderson coming into a Fortune 500 company. They would take it stem to stern. Uh, they would have the sessions in the evenings. They would meet with the women. They would meet with the men. They would have a children's thing. They would reestablish the women's altar society, the, the Marian groups, the um, St. Joseph groups. And so all of these different things would be reestablished. Gotcha. And so in, you know, and again, back then it was a village. It was a small town. And so, you know, but it was a big deal. It was a huge For sure, deal. yeah. And at the end of it, you know, people were, the conversions that took place, the miracles, the healings, you know, and, and we still see those today on the parish missions that we do, which are only a week in length, and we don't, we're not that extensive yeah. in it. But, you know, we're really supposed to come in as a support apparatus to the priest, to the pastor of the parish, to help reinvigorate and come back to the basics. And if if a community has a sense of prayer, and that's what I love about this community, is that it's not Father Baron that's leading it. It's the families of this community that are leading it. It's that men reaching out to other men and saying, hey, how you doing? How's your prayer life? Yeah. You know, if we had that, you know, the single thing that I would say that would change the church are for the men of the church to reach out to the other men of the church and say, hey, how can I pray for you? Let's get together. Let's pray together for a little bit. And because men discipling other men saying, hey, let's just pray together. How are we going to pray? I don't know. We'll say, in our Father, Hail Mary, Glory be, and talk to God for five minutes. Yeah. It'll be a 12-minute, you know. Better than nothing. It's better than nothing because it's creating this, this sense of discipleship and this sense of community that we're going to support each other. Mm-hmm. Men are the spiritual head of the household. Women are the heart. If you separate the head from the heart or if the head isn't functioning, there, there's going to be huge issues between the head and the heart. And so the, that's the number one thing to re, reinvigorate marriages, reinvigorate parishes, is to invest in our devotional and prayer lives. So if we pray together, we'll stay together. If we don't, if we just go through the motions, then, you know, the average age of your parish will be deceased. And yeah, it's all downhill from it's there. It's a terrible average age. Uh, so um, this has been a recurring theme on several of my podcasts recently, um, talking about the need for cultivating holiness we tend to, I think, sometimes focus on stamping out heterodoxy or uh, really just engaging head-on in the culture war and making sure you get out the vote, etc. All those things can be important, but if they're not rightly ordered by a prayer life, by a devotional life, by a divine intimacy with God, 
they're going to be disordered right from the start. Um, and so I, I really appreciate that, that, um, call that exhortation on your part to return to a devotional life. I think that's really good pastoral advice before you leave. Final thing to ask you, uh, as I mentioned, I'm releasing this in the lead up to divine mercy Sunday. Yeah. Talk to me about divine mercy. This is uh, obviously a major part of the fathers of mercy charism, as you already mentioned, is helping people return to the sacrament of reconciliation. Mercy is, I mean, the sacrament of mercy, right? It's, it's the, it's the center of what's going on there. So talk to us about divine mercy Sunday. What should we be thinking about? And then uh, maybe, maybe this would be a good time to plug the divine mercy chaplet, how we could be praying that more. Yeah, it, it all interrelates. So our Lord appears to Faustina in 1932, St. Faustina in 1932, and uh, you know says, this is a message for the end times. And he says, before the hour of justice is the hour of mercy. And some people think that, specifically in the more conservative crowd, says, says, well, I don't like divine mercy because I like sacred heart. Well, if you listen to our Lord's words to Margaret Mary, St. Margaret Mary, in the sacred heart revelation, is our Lord says, I've had enough. I'm sick of being treated with hatred and indifference. And he's talking about his, his body and blood in the Eucharist. And he says, before it's too late, I demand love be returned for love and penance be done. And so divine mercy comes and our Lord says, before it's too late, you have the hour of mercy. So basically the divine mercy is, is the continuation of the sacred heart re- revelation where our Lord says, uh, do penance before it's too late. Basically divine mercy says it's too late. Before the day of justice is the hour of mercy. And I believe we're in that hour now. When you look at the promises our Lord made, one through the image, uh, two through the chaplet, three through the feast day of divine mercy, which is the second Sunday after Easter. One of the things our Lord promises on that second Sunday after Easter, if you have gone to confession within 20 days, okay, if you receive Holy Communion in the state of grace, you do not get a plenary indulgence. This is not a plenary indulgence that happens on Divine Mercy Sunday. On Divine Mercy Sunday, those who have gone to confession and receive Holy Communion in the state of grace on that day receive the complete renewal of their baptismal graces. This is totally different than a plenary indulgence where that can be offered for someone else. This grace is applied to the individual and individual alone, and their soul is restored to their baptismal graces. It's pretty cool. It's amazing. Like people have no clue what that's about. Like last year I was losing my mind because where we were, it was forbidden to do anything. Yeah. And and my I mean, I was ripping my garments, I was losing my mind. But when you look at that, what that does now, people will say, Well, well, I just go back to my habitual sins after the fact. Well, you know what? It it restores your soul to grace, to your baptismal grace, but it doesn't wipe out the muscle memory that exists. Mm-hmm. And so we have to make that distinction that, yes, I've been returned, and that makes it all that more important for me to double down and, and live my faith, know my faith. Right. So that, In the same way, by the way, that baptism doesn't yeah. erase your muscle memory. So exactly. if, you're a, if, you, if you're stuck in habitual sin, but you come to a genuine conversion and you ask for baptism and you're baptized, it doesn't mean that all of those temptations will just suddenly disappear. Exactly. And the devil doesn't disappear either. No. No. And he actually pursues you even all the harder to try to discourage you and make you lose faith and lose that grace. Yeah. So, um, but that's the importance of Divine Mercy Sunday. It cannot be emphasized enough that that. Every single Catholic has the opportunity to the renewal of their baptismal state in life. Unreal. All temporal punishment, sin, gone. Personal sin, gone. Unreal. 
Um, our Lord says in the in the diary that that be it, I think it's uh, six eighty nine of the diary that be it no mind of man or angel will ever understand what my mercy is doing. All the divine floodgates are opened on that day. So he said, and let the hard most hardened sinner come to me, because I will I'll make them brand new. And so it's so important to encourage a confession prior to Divine Mercy Sunday and then worthy reception on Divine Mercy Sunday. Um, so that's that's the day of. Um, the, the chaplet of Divine Mercy is so important. People don't understand what the chaplet is. And um, uh, I preach very uniquely on this. I have not heard anyone else speak of it the way that I do. I'm not saying I'm, I'm unique in this, but I've not heard others present on it, and I wish they would. Um, the Divine Mercy Chaplet is an extension of the Liturgy of the Eucharist. When you think about the Divine Mercy Chaplet, the prayers that we say are what? Eternal Father, I offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity mm-hmm. of your dearly beloved Son, our yep. Lord Jesus Christ, an atonement for our sins and those of the whole world. So when I teach people— And to, the, O blood and water, which gush forth in the heart of Jesus, yes, right? Yeah, exactly. So when I teach people to pray the Mass, I say, pay attention to, to who's speaking, mm-hmm. who are you speaking to, and what are you saying? Very simple. So who is speaking in this? I am speaking. Who am I speaking to? I am speaking to the Eternal Father. And the Divine Mercy Chaplet is different than the Rosary. The Rosary is an objective meditation on the 20 mysteries of Christ. The Chaplet is an offering. It is an action. So if you hold your hands out, like you're offering someone something, right? What are you? What is in your hands? What are you offering to the Eternal Father? So you've got to see the Eternal Father in your mind. There you are. You're offering what to the Eternal Father? The body, blood, soul, and divinity mm-hmm. of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we find the body, blood, soul, and divinity? It's in the Eucharist. Eucharist. Yeah. Right? How is it possible for a lay person to do what my job is, right? It's because I'm pretty sure I have one job, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like offer the Mass, right? right? Well, it's active participation. Sacra Santo Concilium, paragraph 42 through 48-ish. Um, in that section, it talks about active participation as the lay faithful entering into the sacrifice of Calvary through the hands of the priest in unifying their intentions, prayers, joys, love, their entire self uniting through the hands of the priest and the offering of Calvary to God the Father. And so every time a lay person or myself prays the Divine Mercy Chaplet, we are mystically entering into that great doxology of the Mass. The great doxology where the priest has elevated the body blood of Jesus, saying, through him, with him, and in him, O yeah. God, Almighty Father, right? And, and so this is the Divine Mercy Chaplet. So when you pray the chaplet, five times you enter into that great doxology mystically. And it is so you're making present the very graces of Calvary, all of those graces, for yourself, for the intention that you're praying, and then for the place that you're at. So the, the power of the Chaplet of Divine Mercy is, is so underrated and so unappreciated um, because we, we haven't stopped and, and meditated on what exactly it is that we're saying or doing. Yeah. Again, it just goes back to Catholic muscle memory. But there's power in the words, right? And so even if a person doesn't know what they're saying or doing, still happening mm-hmm. right they're just not receiving the fullness of the graces right. that they could so right. it's an opportunity for growth in the share yeah that's great yeah uh it also makes me think or makes me uh recall that this is the whole reason why i think we should do all masses at orientum i agree completely. because we're all with the priest yes facing god the father of giving that offering so yes that's another conversation for another day, I but I love yeah, it. Uh, I mean, I, to me, I get, I get frustrated the whole, you know, TLM versus Novus Ordo conversation. 
I just want everybody at Orientum. That's yeah. that's what I want. Like, let's let's just start there. Yeah, and we'll it, go with that. Those conversations are exhausting. Um, you know, it, it's when you hear uh, Latin mass is better. Yeah. This, you know, again, I love the Latin mass. I, I believe me, but this is where we are. Right. You know, what is it? One or two percent of Catholics participate in the Latin mass, and you got ninety eight percent who don't. And of that ninety percent eight who ninety eight percent who don't, seventy percent of them don't even know about the Eucharist. Right. Right. Where am I going to invest my time in mm-hmm. Latin or catechizing on yeah. the Eucharist, evangelizing on the Eucharist? Well, you're also in dangerous territory if you start suggesting that the Novus Ordo is invalid right. or not a real mass. So yeah. you certainly can't do that. So yeah. you have to accept that they're both good, legitimate, yeah. licit, yes, holy masses. As as our Holy Father uh, yeah. Benedict the Sixteenth has done. Exactly. And then and then there's just a question of well, which way should you face? <laughs> No, at Orientum. Well, well, it's Jewish roots. Yeah, right. Exactly. Listen to my talk. Yeah, yeah. No, good point. Uh, and speaking of that talk, uh, where can people go to find out more about your stuff, Father? Can I see, uh, as I mentioned, right here on my desk, uh, one of your parish missions? There, this is Why Be Catholic: Renewal of the Covenant. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to send that to a, a listener. Um, but where can people find more of your work? Uh, Fathersofmercy.com. If you click on the little icon in the top right that says shop, uh, you'll see my set come up right in the front row. It's called Why Be Catholic? And it's Fundamentals of the Faith. Uh, as I mentioned in there, the uh, the talks, uh, the, well, I'll go through the talks. The first talk is Does God Exist and Is Jesus Christ God? Second talk is uh, What Did Jesus Do? Gives a Church or Spirituality, where I go through the Jewish roots of our faith, covenant theology, and some basic apologetics. The third talk is Why Do We Do That as Catholics? And we talk about the Eucharist, devotion to Mary, and a confession to a priest, so biblical apologetics. Uh, the fourth talk are the two obstacles to healing, and we go through some basic morality and then in uh, forgiveness. So if anyone is struggling with forgiveness in your life, get that fourth talk. Where That's great. You got to buy the whole set, actually. But um, for 20 bucks, it will change your life because I give you a way to forgive everyone in your life perfectly, and it sets you free. Uh, so that's the fourth talk. The fifth talk is how to pray the mass. And uh, these are these are f- the fundamental principles of what I preach on uh, when I do a mission. Got it. Yeah. So uh, fathersofmercy.com. And then also on amazon.com, April 6th, uh, my book, Why Be Catholic, uh, is available through Tan Publishing. Oh, I didn't realize that. Cool. It's, uh, yeah. Oh, nice. Crazy humbling. And uh, like, I'm very shy even about talking Man, about I, it. I had no idea that was coming out. Okay. So April, let's, let's just back up. Yeah. So make sure we get that. So April <laughs> oh, 6th. By the way. <laughs> yeah. Tan Books is releasing on April 6th, your yeah. book, Why Be Catholic. Why Be Catholic. And so, so Father Ken Geraci, yep. uh, G-E-R-A-C-I. Yep. Um, I will, uh, I don't think that. I think I'm going to release this on April 5th. So, but I will go back to the show notes yeah. uh, and, and add it in after the fact so yeah. that people can, can find the book there. So just yeah. give me the 30 second book trailer. What's uh, the book about? It's the, it's the mission converted into a talk, right? Into a okay. uh, text. That sounds wonderful. So, yeah. Okay. The, uh, the editor of Tan was at, uh, well, the vice president was at one of my missions in Charlotte. And he said to me, he goes, yeah, he goes, I liked your content. It was good. He goes, but what impressed me the most is that my two teenagers came every night of your mission and like I called them at 11 o'clock at night and said hey where are you how come you aren't home they're like oh we're waiting in line for confession cool you know and he said he goes you had that effect on my kids he's like we need to get this in print that's so, great yeah well congratulations yes. thank you I, so much. I look forward to to reading that and pointing listeners to it so yeah, it's exciting. cool I, I you should have told me that earlier we could have talked about that a little bit more <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> unfortunately we're out of time now all right last last final question I promise um I when I remember I like to ask people about a, a favorite saint of theirs or a saint that's been on their mind and uh, just ask for a 30 to 60 second kind of highlight what, what should we know about the saint why should we why should we care so 
Oh. I'm putting you on the spot here. I didn't. Easy. I did not tell you I was going to do this. No, but no. Who, who do you got? My big sister, Saint Margaret Mary Alacoque. Oh, okay. Sixteen seventy-two ish. Our Lord appears to her, holding his heart in his hand, yeah. saying, "Behold the heart that has loved mankind so much that has only received indifferent sacrilege and hatred in return for its love." And he asked her to just establish the feast of uh, the Sacred Heart, mm-hmm. the first Fridays. But he said in that devotion, he says, "It's it's normally this call for penance." But he told Margaret Mary, he says, "Return love for love." And so when you unpack Eucharistic theology, like Margaret Mary gives us that true Eucharistic theology is one recognizing that we were loved first and it is his love that brought us to the Eucharist and his presence, the greatest gift that we can give God is our presence. And so it's presence, the presence, but Eucharistic spirituality doesn't stop there. Mm -hmm. When you leave the presence of the Eucharist and you go out and encounter another person, how are you substantially and truly present to them? And so it's it's the presence that we bring to each other that yeah. changes each other's lives. And so it's an expansion of Eucharistic theology to, to living out the presence of God to others. Uh, St. Margaret Mary, quite possibly the most uh, one of the most humble and hidden saints of the church. Uh, there's a Sacred Heart statue everywhere, but no St. Margaret Mary it's statues. It's true, yeah. Um, but she never wanted to be known. Yeah. She was, the thought of her being known was horrifying to her. She reminds me of St. Bernadette who, um, as you know, after Our Lady of Lords appeared to her, she became a sister and lived the rest of her life in, with the sisters there in relative anonymity. And she told people that her job was to be a broom. Yeah. And Mary took her out to you know, help kind of clean up the church, do some sweeping, and then yep. put her right back in the closet. Yep. And, that, and that was where she was content to be. Very content to be. Yeah. So, so a lot of witnesses, a lot of help. But uh, if you need anything, go to St. Margaret Mary. She's powerful. She's quiet. And she moves like a, like a lightning bolt. She's That's amazing. great. Well, thank you, Father. Uh, I really appreciate the time. To my listeners, again, fathersofmercy.com. You can yes. find Father Ken's parish mission there and news to me a new book coming out via tam publishers on april 6th as i mentioned after april 6th i'll go back to the show notes and put it in there so if you're listening to this after that uh go find it there uh and as we are talking about this on the on the eve of the feast of divine mercy sunday after easter uh, have a blessed divine mercy sunday as well thank you father thank you god bless